Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a physiologist, a licensed nutritionist, and a former competitive bodybuilder. Today we have individual takes from myself and Phil and Mike. Uh, There should be quite a bit of content here. There was a technical glitch. We were traveling, and normally we can upload the show even when we travel, but that was not possible. So that's why you're going to get some individual stuff coming at you here. Um, We were actually down in Clearwater, Florida at a conference presenting some data. So my only contribution here really is to just um, let you know what we did. And that was we actually took habituated coffee consumers and we wanted to see what happened to their autonomic nervous system. We wanted to see if coffee had more of a relaxing or more of a wiring effect Um, And as it turns out, yes, it made them alert, as you might guess. It was a trend in the data, a very strong one, though. Uh, But also their HRV, their heart rate variability, the higher the number, and we just use a simple 100 score. It's like a composite score. But it went up over this two-hour period. It happened for both coffee and decaf. And our water condition just sort of flatlined. It didn't go up like this. Now, Importantly, this was also after a standard meal. They they uh, received four pieces of white bread because we were also looking at w- what the coffee did to their glycemia, to their blood sugar. But in any case, um, it was fascinating because uh, working with the students, we hypothesized that it would actually decrease their, their HRV, right? It would make them more fight-or-flight sympathetically driven. Um, and we thought that because even though some data suggest otherwise, we saw – epinephrine increases in people who received via instant coffee we gave two packets um it's a little bit over 320 milligrams of caffeine so it came out to about four or five uh, milligrams per kg of their body weight and you know that's a performance enhancing dose and it did uh, trend strongly toward making them more alert and in the past we've shown alertness but in any case fascinating right so when they come in the lab if they're slightly stressed that is their hrv is low so you could say stressed or under recovered i know a lot of uh, commercial products will use hrv specifically uh as like a marker of overtraining but what it's really measuring is your fight or flight versus your restive digestive components of your autonomic nervous system so if they came in slightly stressed it actually made them feel better it actually helped with nervous system recovery and that's fascinating right because you can get sort of the mental alertness and feel up 
And yet, it has an almost restorative, a reparative effect on your nervous system. So another reason for me to just become very interested in, you know, coffee is almost an ideal pre-workout because it's not going to string you out any further or any worse if you're already under a lot of mental and physical stress. Um, so if anybody has questions about that, you can send an email through ironradio.org. And that is the last part that I will contribute. We'll go over uh, to Phil and then after the break to Mike. Take care. Good morning, everybody. This is Phil Stevens with Iron Radio. I'm a strength coach, power lifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild, amongst other things. So I know Lonnie and Mike are on the road today, so we're all recording separate parts of this episode. So what I'm going to do today is I put up a post earlier in the week, and I'm going to address some questions as best I can. I am not a medical professional. And I never claim to be, so any information I give, take it with a grain of salt. Um, it's just from years of in-the-trenches experience. So, um, First up, Mark Elder. Hi, Mark. Uh, he's wondering, dry needling, worth the pain, yes or no? Oh, I, I mean, I've had it done a few times. I had my hamstring tear off my hip and repaired and it caused a bunch of scar tissue i was having some reoccurring pain uh where all that scar tissue was and we did a bunch of dry needling on it i think i did three or four sessions and uh it wasn't too painful in in my opinion but i mean i'm a weirdo and i've dealt with pain my whole life but uh yeah i mean it, it helped me a ton so i could tell session to session that i was getting better and uh it helped break that stuff up and get me back to where I was lifting in no pain. Is it a uh, quick fix to a complex problem? No. Um, I think dry needling along with some other work. I mean, I think the dry needling can get you out of pain and then you need to make sure you're moving right and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a big part of the, it should be a big part of um people's plans to come back like especially if you have scar tissue things like that bound up muscles uh, i think it can help a ton I, I i i enjoyed it it helped me and i will do it again if i have a such a problem so um, i'm lucky that i have a a great chiropractor that does it in stefan stevens over to be sports performance and uh, that's what i'd look for anybody looking for a chiropractor i i, I like steven because he you don't walk in. He's not one of those guys that's like, we need you to sign up for a six-month contract. You're going to come back once a week. Uh, he's more of a, if I can't fix you in three or four sessions, then you need to go somewhere else. I can't fix you. So uh, that's the only thing I'd warn people. You don't need 600 sessions of dry needling. If you can't get the thing at least going in the right direction after a few, then probably need to look at something else. Um, Nate Had is the next he is asking, what is the best way to incorporate loaded carries and conditioning into a program so as to not take away from your main lifts? Um, I'm actually working with Nate on, on some things, and Nate's been on the show. But in my opinion, the best way, how we incorporate these things is usually at the end of the session, anywhere from five minutes to ten minutes. Start off slow. Uh, would be the main thing I tell people. I mean, it's a new stimulus. 
it's like anything else. You can't just keep stacking training on training on training. And, uh, the loaded carries and stuff will, will kick your butt in a, in a special way. And I think it's a good way for hip mobility and, and core strength, but add in a carrier too. Uh, add in a little bit of conditioning and, and go from there. So, uh, and then once you're used to that, add in a few more carries. Um, I don't think it needs to go crazy. I don't think anybody needs to do much more than 15 minutes of like conditioning stuff. If you get your heart pumping, um, even my competitive powerlifters, of course, we do like almost zero cardio coming up to meet day. But after it, then we get into more, you know, the tempo of training even picks up and things like that. And then we'll do some kettlebell swings and some loaded carries and things like that. I'm not a big believer in the, uh, totally out of shape power lifter, but, uh, so we'll add some conditioning in there and things like that. I think the biggest thing people notice when they come to my facility is you just have to have some kind of conditioning just to get through the training program. So some carries and sleds and I try and go hiking, things like that. Uh, your conditioning doesn't need to, and I don't think it should kick your ass. You know, you don't need to be on the ground dying. Um, start off below your threshold and work your way up. And I do the same thing in training. Um, I'd rather start below our, our current capacity. And then by doing that several sets, you can build up your conditioning without having to lay on the ground and puke. So just slowly add it in and, and uh, add from there. But Trevor, burning off belly fat. I'm guessing how do we do this? Um, I think we've covered this a lot, but uh, it's worth stating again. I mean, there is essentially no way to spot reduce. So, you know, everybody's a little different. I tend to hold my extra body weight in my love handles first. So that's like first on last, last off. Um, some people hold it up front in their belly. Some people hold it on their ass. Some people hold it on their legs. Um, but no matter what, I mean, basically your best bet is to get whole body, body fat down. And as eventually that will come off, it's just a matter of getting your whole body down. Um, you can't do abs to make your belly leaner and things like that. I think there is a little bit of studies on like some, you know, warming of the tissue around there may help. So, I mean, if you want to wear warm clothes, things like that. Um, it might get some more blood flow to those areas and maybe help a little bit, but you're talking the, you know, a one to 2% increase. So it's just more about, you know, what goes in your mouth and what you expend. You know, you take those two things. If you're expending more than you're eating, then you're going to slowly lose weight. You're going to slowly lose hopefully fat and it's going to come off your whole system and if you're that person that holds it on your belly, you're just going to have to get the rest of you really lean. Like my arms and legs instantly lean out and I hold weight around my trunk. And I think a lot of people are that way. And, uh, so it'll slowly go down. I mean, what you can do is just get jacked. You know, the more muscle you have, the more you show at a higher percentage of body fat. So that's another route around it, but it's going to have nothing to do with your body fat. So Mikhail. Branisic. Oh, Mikhail. It's good to talk to you again. Um, Mick's been one of my athletes before in the past and, uh,
but he's got a question. Does cardio kill strength? This is a complex question. The answer is yes and no. Um, I mean, it depends on what you define strong. So do I think that, you know, Lasha is doing a ton of cardio to be able to snatch and clean and jerk, you know, clean and jerk near 600 pounds and snatch 500? No, it's not his job. Uh, he has to be able to sustain, you know, endure one rep. So of course I'm, I'm guessing his cardio ability is not very good. Whereas somebody that runs ultra marathons, theirs needs to be well. Um, so, I mean, basically I told him not only does it kill strength, it also kills puppies, but <laughs> he reframed his question to, is there a good combination of cardio and strength training? Yeah. Again, it's goal dependent. What are you trying to do? So do I think you can be, uh, above average strong and have a bug of average conditioning? Yes. And I think everybody should. I think most people that are trying to get stupid strong, probably lay off cardio a bit too much. Um, you need to have some kind of base form of conditioning. Like you shouldn't walk up a flight of stairs and just be dying. Um, that's just uncalled for. But, uh, you know, if you're looking to be just above average strength, above average conditioning, yes. Um, you can do it. Uh, it's just plain and simple. You just need to get on a smart plan and prioritize what you're going. I mean, I can tell you this. Just from past and doing this, conditioning or cardio is quickly gained and quickly lost, meaning like I haven't jogged in years. Uh, luckily, I was told I'm not supposed to run anymore when I got my hip replacement. But uh, if I started running today, it would really suck for a week. And then after a week, it wouldn't be so bad. Uh, I would make marked gains in my endurance capacity where strength let's say i haven't done any strength training and i started this week at a as a conditioned athlete uh in strength i'm not going to make that drastic of gains uh, in strength and muscle uh, that stuff takes longer to add but it also sticks around longer i mean that can be seen and like i took damn near a two-year hiatus when i had my hip replacement and then my hamstring and, uh, it didn't take long to come back. Um, a lot of that stuck around. Yes, of course I lost some of it, but it came back quickly. Whereas my cardio was shit. Um, I had to take a few months and, uh, I don't know. I took like six weeks or something like that and did a program that's more based on conditioning. I did Dan John's 10,000 swing thing and things like that. And I'll still do some, like I want to be able to at all times go in there and pick up a kettlebell and do a hundred swings without it kicking my ass. So I keep some of that stuff in there. And then I'm active around the farm and things like that. But Mick, I mean, it really depends on what your, we need to know your definition of, uh, what's good cardio and strength. I mean, so, I mean, I, at my facility, we definitely lean more towards the strength side of things. Um, you know, in my opinion, you know, strength is the, if you had a ladder of, of, of things, Strength would be near the top, meaning if you, I raise your strength, it's going to raise up your ability to do other things. If I take you from a 225 squat to a 405 squat, of course, you're going to be able to do more reps with 185. Uh, but that ends at a point. I mean, I can't tell you that, like, if I make you a thousand pound squatter, does that mean you're going to be able to run? No. Um, 
but it, to a point, I mean, even marathon runners, we can make them better at running by doing deadlifts and things like that. So they have the strength in their legs. So it just depends on what you're defining as, uh, good. You know, what are your goals? I would say with most people, I would say, get your strength, like define your goals. I want to be this strong and I want to be able to run this far. I would do a little bit of conditioning and I would get myself 10% above my strength goals because that's going to take the longest. Once you're there, now our goal is to preserve your limit strength and slowly raise up the conditioning and get your conditioning on par with your goals uh, would probably be your fastest. If you go the other way, way, I think it's just going to take forever or you won't get there. If you got your conditioning up first and then uh, try to add strength, I think you're going to be better off adding the strength, eating, things like that, not letting yourself go too sloppy, keeping in a little bit of conditioning. And then uh, once you get the strength up there, you can uh, add on the conditioning. So, no, I don't think it totally kills kills strength. I mean, I think I could, I've got a lot of athletes that do it. And, uh, you know, I have numerous people where we have to, like, I need to have a mile, a fairly good mile time. We're able to have them do that plus get stronger at the same time. I think if you wanted to be like an elite marathon runner and an elite power lifter, you're chasing two rabbits at one time. Uh, you just need to pick your goal. Those two goals are battling each other. And anybody that tells you otherwise is an idiot, in my opinion. So, I mean, there's a reason the best of the best in their sports concentrate on their sports. So, I mean, that's even looking at, look at CrossFitters. I mean, um, they are jacks of all trades. Is a CrossFitter most likely going to walk in? Can a CrossFitter walk in and beat the top tier Olympic weightlifters or powerlifters? No. Uh, can they hold their own? Yeah, kind of. And at the same turn, is that CrossFitter going to go in and beat an ultra marathon runner in their race? No, but they're going to kind of hold their own. So they're, they're well-rounded. They're not going to be the best at anything. So, I mean, that's what you have to choose. I've done some of that. I did some of that. I did CrossFit before CrossFit was cool. And then I just found out I love strength. So what I do, I drop my conditioning a bunch and decided just to do what it takes to be the strongest I can be. Um, knowing that in doing that, I, uh, I'm going to lose some conditioning. And I'm okay with that. But I keep up a certain level of it. Like I can go out and hike four miles. Things like that. So, um, And me. I mean, you never heard... You know, like Mike Tyson. People weren't scared of him because he could go 12 rounds. People were scared of Mike Tyson because he could knock you out in 3.5 seconds. So, yeah, there's that. I mean, it just depends on what, what cuts your mustard. So, Max. Max is wondering what my favorite cut of beef is. God, that's a hard one, Max. Uh, depends on the day. You can't... <sighs> Ribeyes are amazing. I love them. Um, it's hard to beat that. But then again, on there are certain days that I want a tougher cut of meat. Um, like, give me a sirloin or like we smoked a brisket. Uh, it was amazing too. So I, I have no hate for any, any cut of beef, but I mean, if I had to pick one, I'd probably say ribeye. So, uh, would be my favorite. Brian, Brian Haley. Brian's going to be doing a meet with me up in, uh, Columbus, Ohio. We're going to try to pull Mr. Wendler out of his cave. Maybe he'll get up there, yell obscenities at me and tell me how much I suck. But, um, 
Brian is asking, which will increase my run reps, one rep squat max more? A big Texas cinnamon roll or a package of zingers? Or will I get a bonus per- percentage for consuming them both? Oh, man, that's hard. I mean, I'm guessing the big Texas cinnamon roll, just due to its sheer, sheer volume, is probably going to uh, raise your squat more um, if you had to just pick one. And that's just because of its anabolic ratio, the frosting, um, things like that is really going to kick in and help your squat. But I think you're onto something here that will you get bonus percentage for consuming both? I would say so. I mean, I might tell you like a half an hour before you go in, you devour that big Texas cinnamon roll, let that settle a bit. Your blood sugar is going to be zooming from that cinnamon roll. And then we have those zingers that we can slowly eat during and after the squat session. So um, we can keep our our blood glucose up and uh, firing through all those squats. And you're probably going to get the biggest bang for your buck. Um, if I had to put a number on it, if you were to eat a big Texas cinnamon roll and one package of zingers twice a week for 16 weeks, I could comfortably say you're probably going to get about a 10% increase if your training didn't change at all. Now, you have to remember these are big Texas cinnamon rolls and zingers. They're not uh, amateur supplements. You're messing with big boy things here. So we could likely increase our training volume and intensity, which would even give us better. But I think if you just held everything constant and the same as usual, at least a 10% bonus. So... um. I'm going to hold Zach's question off a little bit longer because it could be a long one. Justin Minahan is wondering, does getting laid regularly affect your testosterone, etc.? And he's being serious about this. He's not messing around with it. Ah, man, there are uh, there's studies out there that are showing they are. Um, is it minuscule? Potentially. There's definitely studies out there showing that uh, sexual activity... Uh, to the point of ejaculation or masturbation does raise your testosterone in the short term. So that could uh, definitely help. And then uh, there's a new study out of, oh, where was it? Somewhere in Australia, I do believe. Handelsman is the professor or doctor. And they did a study on 1,700 men. Yeah, Dr. David Handelsman, a researcher at the University of Sydney in South Wales, Australia. They uh, evaluated 1,700 men, age 70 and above, in Sydney. Uh, They tested them at the start, and then they tested them for two years. And by the end, the 400 dropped out, so they still had 1,300 men. But what they ended up showing is that... uh, They've measured their blood for testosterone and other hormones. They found that there was a decline in testosterone, about a 10% drop, and it was linked to decreased sexual activity and desire, not the other way around. The testosterone didn't drop first, and then sexual activity and desire dropped. The activity and desire dropped first, and then the testosterone followed it down. Um, This could be a cause and effect thing. We don't know. But uh, that that one there is at least saying it's the opposite. Everybody's thinking, what they're arguing is that everybody's thinking that, you know, they need to raise it up first and that's going to bring back 
uh, desire and activity. But this study showed that the decrease in activity and desire came first and then followed by the drop in testosterone. So, yeah, it could help. I mean, but I mean, if it raises it for an hour, eh, is that going to help you like get jacked and tan? Probably not. Could it potentially help? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not going to hurt. I'm not going to tell you not to do it, but um, yeah, it definitely could help is what I'm seeing in various studies. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, hell, it just makes you feel better, which <laughs> is, is not a bad thing. So go for it. Um, Lindsay Floyd, she is wondering if I can give some points. I'd love to hear some postpartum lifting content for mothers out there. Um, God, I've dealt with a lot of them and it really depends. But I mean, just like when, when they're, when you're pregnant, you just got to be smart about it. Um, listen to your body, take time. There's a lot of things we need to work on there. And you have to remember when you're pregnant, like all your connective tissue loosens up and things like that. So we need to take time, be patient. I mean, you don't need your pre-pregnancy lifts and pre-pregnancy body back in eight weeks. Um, no, it's going to take some time. Be smart about it. If something feels off, it probably is off. Slowly raise up, give yourself six months, a year or something like that, just to get your lifts back. And even at that point, maybe you're not back to that body. Yes. There are women out there that can, you know, three weeks later, they're back in their pants. They wore before they were pregnant. I mean, my mom was that way. She like wore her pants that she had pre-pregnancy, like the day she gave birth to me. She's just lucky. Um, every woman's different. So take your time, you know, get some core lifts in, letting everything tighten back up. Let give those, give your tendons and things some months to, to do stuff, get your mobility back. You're, you're comfortable and this, and everything's going to be different. If you had a C-section, of course, now we've got other things to battle because you probably had your abdominal wall torn apart. So we need to get that thing back in line. Um, get some core strength going on. That's where I would incorporate loaded carries and things like that. Um, to just, you know, strengthen your abdominal core without stressing it too much. Um, let your abdominal wall do its job, which is to prevent unwanted activity, um, unwanted motion. Uh, be able to hold yourself in, in good form and just take your time. So, um, Phil, Phil asked me, have you ever drunk? Have you ever got drunk and walked to the dock and howled at the moon and waved your hairy fist? I have. Phil, I've done it. I've probably done it with you prior. Um, that sounds like a good time. Maybe we'll do it again. So, Zach. Zach, this will be the last one I get here. Zach would like to hear me talk about my hip replacement. Um, the first part of this, maybe how I knew it was time to do it. Oh, God. There were several components in that. Basically, I had been, it had been about nine or ten years since I was diagnosed like needing a hip. So early thirties, I got diagnosed with I had zero cartilage left in my left hip. And that was mainly from my right hip was totally fine. That was mainly from, I got ran over when I was seven and it crushed that hip in 16 pieces. So they equated it to driving a car on bad alignment. The part just wore out quick. So how I knew they told me to hold off as long as I can. So I held off to the point where life was pretty miserable. Uh, I wasn't sleeping well. I was popping pain pills. Like my last 
five meats or more, I I would take a I would take NSAIDs and a pain pill to squat, and then I'd do the same thing before deadlift, just to do it. Now, am I saying this is a smart thing to do? Probably not, but that's just what I did. Um, I was never the person that I didn't pop pain pills all day. I dealt with the pain for those years. The only time I would take one usually is to sleep. So, uh, because it's really hard. I can ignore pain during the day, but when it's quiet and you're trying to go to bed and then there's nothing else on your mind but pain, that's when I did it. I mean, we had two things coming up. It was that. I was at that point where I was like, man, I should get this thing done. I probably could have held off another year or two. But at the same time, we were also giving, my wife was giving birth to our son. And, uh, so about six weeks before his birth, I did my hip replacement and that ate up our insurance deductible. And then let's get them both done in the same year. So, and the method I used for recovery, uh, number one for me, cause it'd been so many years, I used the walker longer than I needed to. Um, and the reason for that was to teach myself how to walk right again. I had walked with a huge limp and my leg turned sideways for a long time. So I needed, I would use the walker to let me concentrate on just walking correctly again, getting my gait fixed. From there, I spent a lot of time on a bicycle and with the seat really high and I slowly lowered it over the weeks, getting my mobility back in my hip, you know, and how I could tell that my leg would shift way out to the left if I started pushing too high. So I set the seat at a height where my leg didn't try and track way out. And then I slowly lowered that and I would stay at the new height until I could comfortably just pedal there. And then I got to the point where it was at parallel or 90 degree angle or more. And then I slowly eased into squatting again. Um, my orthopedic surgeon told me that basically I'm good. Load is not going to hurt that thing. That's relative. I'm not sure he knew I'd be squatting over 700 pounds on a fake hip, but um, he just warned me, don't spend a lot of time way below parallel. So he said, do most of my training at or a little above parallel because that's where the main stress is going to come onto that hip. Uh, I have no issues with it now. For a couple years, it was it just felt loose, but I, I dealt with it. And so, I mean, the only thing, my training has changed a little bit volume, not load tends to make me ache more. So I'll know, let's say we get a certain number of reps and it'll just start aching. So that's my cue to, okay, I'm done for the day. I had the stimulus I can take. Um, I don't run anymore. I try not to do anything pounding because that's what he told me would, would wear the life of the hip more is, uh, pounding exercises, landing on jumps and things like that. So, uh, no jogging, no sprints, I lend myself more towards like hiking and pull loaded carries, things that I can do slowly, but still uh, get some conditioning in. So that's kind of where we head now. As far as recovery, man, I was instantly out of pain. I mean, the biggest thing, I don't think my recovery has changed due to the hip. My recovery has changed due to my age. I can go just as hard or harder than I ever have. I just can't go as often. So I only load that hip really heavy once a week. So, and that's a big reason I changed to all my squats and deadlifts on one day. I tried to go back doing having a squat day and a deadlift day. And all it did was make them both suck. I was pretty much always aching. So I do those all, all my heavy lifts together on one day. And then, you know, I, I'm 
I'll be in a little pain. Nowadays, it's not really joint pain anymore. It's just uh, muscular pain. And uh, so I get a big dose that one day, then I have a week to recover from it. Then I might do some light stuff on Wednesday because that, that heavy day is last Saturday. So then I'll have a light day after. And then uh, I think I'll be having, oh, he's going to have to get one soon. Just be smart about it. You'll You'll feel it. And for me, the biggest thing was giving time to, they loosen a lot of things up when they do that procedure. So like I said, mine clunked for a while and you'll be able to tell, like I'd squat down and I could feel it like almost moving. Give all that stuff time to, to go back up and just remember, like you don't need to be crushing hundred percent loads to keep your strength. If you can keep some, uh, some movement in, you're going to retain most of your stuff. It didn't take me long once I decided to compete again to get backed up to the levels where I was at. And now I'm past them. As far as my squat, I'm way past it. So, um, take your time, get mobility back first, be able to walk right first, then slowly add in the training, squatting, things like that. Start off, um, start off high, slowly work down. I use the box. If anything hurts, call it, you know, one of my big rules is like, if it, if I get a little bit of pain on one rep, okay, whatever. If I feel that again, I can't fix it it's probably time to, to call the set. Like last week I had some pain. I did my five, a hard set of five and I got some pain at the bottom of my glute. And, uh, then we went to our AMRAP. I, I did rep one and two, two kind of hurt. So I tried to fix it. I did three, four and five. I noticed I was calling it high, so it wouldn't hurt. So I just called the set. Um, it was time to walk away. I wasn't doing myself any favors, so don't be afraid to just walk away and do something different that doesn't hurt. So um, that's about it, guys. I'm gonna get ready to go in and squat now and do some deadlifts, and uh, I will talk to you guys next week. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. I Am Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, 
In about 15 minutes, we covered taste and texture, similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> Shorter blurb here on what the heck is physiologic flexibility and why should you care. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about something called homeostatic regulators. We'll talk about recovery work, which ties in um, to that. And I'll give you two action items you can do at the end to help enhance your physiologic flexibility, make you a more robust, anti-fragile person organism and they are both very short so you do not have to add necessarily a ton of time to your busy life already especially if you are just starting to implement some of these so the term physiologic flexibility is kind of sort of a made-up term you can find some research on it uh, but i kind of coined it to reflect Uh, The thought process of once you are good with metabolism, i.e. I'm biased on metabolic flexibility, which we cover in the Flex Diet Certification, what are the next levels of interventions that you should do? Everyone and their brother is reporting some crazy biohack recovery thing, and unfortunately, some of them are, or I'd say a lot of them, not even really based on any physiology. Um, However, you can't throw everything, the baby, out with the bathwater, so to speak. Uh, There are some things that are extremely helpful, um, but maybe only helpful in certain contexts. So physiologic flexibility is how can you be more flexible as an organism, right? Can you go from one end of the spectrum to the other end? And this is going to be primarily governed by the areas of homeostatic regulators. And there's kind of four main areas there. So a homeostatic regulator is something that your body has to hold constant or else you are going to be in a world of hurt. Where bodies like to get back to homeostasis. If you go to the gym and you start doing, for example, some bicep curls, You, of course, are going to potentially injure some of the bicep in a really, really small way. going to damage some of those fibers, but your body is going to see that, and it's going to increase them and make them a little bit bigger and stronger. We also, of course, have neurologic adaptations, soft tissue adaptations, but your body is going to respond to that stress and get a little bit bigger and better. Now, of course, if you do it too much, Maybe you're doing a tire flip and you put your arms underneath it 
and you can't curl the 400 or 600 pound tire and it comes crashing down and you apply a massive amount of eccentric stress to the bicep, that is a recipe for disaster and injury. So we want to have the correct amount of stimulus so that it's within the capacity of the body to absorb that and get better from it. So an example of a homeostatic regulator is going to be temperature. Humans are homeotherms. We like to hold about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, interestingly enough, I pulled up the research on that. So closer to 97 degrees Fahrenheit, but you get the idea. However, we can go outside in warm environments and also cold environments, even without the use of a lot of technology. So I'm recording this in Minnesota, and it's been surprisingly hot and a little bit humid the past few days. I'm not necessarily completely accustomed to it. I don't have a sauna yet. Um, so it's taken me a few days to get used to the heat. I was much more adapted to the cold. Although ironically, when I was in South Padre, Texas, I was more adapted to the heat. So I'm kind of switching back and forth here. Um, however, we have mechanisms, right? We start sweating. We have ways that we can cool our body. It turns out that uh, humans are the most adaptable organism in the animal kingdom. So you can look up something as a hunting technique, uh, which is called persistence hunting. And it allows uh, humans and tribes, especially in the past, to chase animals over long distances for very long periods of time. So they're able to endure long distances quite well. Not necessarily a ton of fun. Um, but the main thing that allows humans to do that is their ability to regulate heat. Um, other animals may be much faster, maybe bigger, maybe stronger. Um, but vast majority of the time, they are much more specialized. Right? You can find animals that do very well in the Arctic. You can find animals that do very well in the desert. Um, but humans are one of the, the rare animals that can go back and forth between those two environments obviously within um, certain caveats and limits. And if you add technology, it can even go a lot further. We have a really great ability to increase uh, temperature or heat ourselves. This can be initially by movement or even later unconsciously even shivering as muscle contraction in order to provide more heat. Unfortunately, uh, most humans spend vast majorities of their time, almost 100% now, in climate-controlled environments. While we're not sure exactly what is the cost of doing this, my guess is we're going to find out in the future that it's not going to be very good. Right? We know that your body responds to stress and that it needs stress to the systems in order to be happy and healthy. This is why exercise is so important and I don't have to belabor that fact to any of you. So we can also have stressors in the form, as I mentioned, of temperature. We can go to hot environments, we can go to colder environments, and we acclimatate to those environments, which is just an adaptation. So if you're trying to get better in the heat, it may take up to two weeks or even longer, depending upon how much adaptation that you need, where you started from, but within a relatively short period of time, 
you get a lot of those benefits just by being exposed to it. You could do a sauna for starting out at just 10 minutes a day or every other day and work your way up from there. Simple things even like exercising in the heat, again, making sure you are hydrated and that you're not pushing it too far because that can be an issue. Just like the tire on the biceps, if you do too much of the stimulus, it definitely can harm you. And with heat, it's interesting that people who have reported massive issues in the heat, uh, such as heat stroke, they appear to be hypersensitive to the heat uh, from that point going forward for quite some time. It's almost like their body got too close to something that could be potentially damaging and it becomes extremely sensitive to it then, which I find interesting. Um, on the cold side, same thing, right? We can get used to colder temperatures. Again, like I said, I live in Minnesota. Definitely gets colder here in the winter, so that works out quite well. You can take cold showers. You can have a freezer like I put in my garage that you can seal everything and convert into your own cold water immersion at home. Again, you have to know the limits and start at the low end because you do not want a massive stimulus. You want just enough to get an adaptation. So other homeostatic regulators, the next one would be pH. Your body has to hold pH very, very tight or otherwise you're going to end up in a world of hurt. But we know you can do some crazy acid bath training and doing lots of high intensity intervals. And that produces a lot of, quote, lactic acid. Uh, lactic acid immediately disassociates into lactate, which gets used as a fuel, and then hydrogen ions. So hydrogen ions are literally an acid that is being dumped into the muscle. And your body has different ways of compensating for that. Another one would be fuel systems. That would be the third homeostatic regulator, blood glucose. And even the backup system to that, I would say, is the use of a ketogenic diet or being in a state of ketosis. So if we locked you in a room without any food, just gave you some water for four days, you'd be very unhappy, but your body would most likely reach a state of ketosis, running a ton of fat through the system. In that particular case would be body fat. And your liver then starts to push out these ketones themselves which can be used as an alternate fuel by the muscles and for your brain. So I think running that system every once in a while as a backup generator, I think can be useful. Of course, there's some caveats with that in terms of training and everything else. Um, so those are three of the homeostatic regulators. The last ones would be how your body uses oxygen and carbon dioxide. So a couple of quick action items you can do. Uh, the first one would be turn your shower to cold for just 10 seconds at the end. Now, depending on where you live, this may not be super cold, um, but you're getting your body accustomed to doing something that is more difficult, but everyone can probably stand it for about 10 seconds. While you may not see a massive physiologic benefit to that, I do think the psychologic benefit of training yourself to do hard things is very useful and then you can slowly progress a little bit more uh, after that just by doing time, and then you can get fancier. Another one is to do some high-intensity interval training. My favorite is to use the rower to do this. So warm up completely, get on the rower and do all-out intervals for 30 to 60 seconds per interval. 
Ideally, you want to keep your watts as high as you can during that entire time. So for most people, they want to start at even 15 seconds or even 30 seconds. Rest completely and try to do that again and get within 5 to maybe 10% of that average wattage. Again, keep the high power output consistently high. So you're just still doing quality work, but that is going to produce a lot of lactate and hydrogen ions. Your body will then have to buffer that. So you are then training the pH regulatory system of the homeostatic regulators. So there's two quick action items you can do to increase your body's ability to handle different types of stressors, to be more robust and anti-fragile by training your homeostatic regulators via the concept of physiologic flexibility. Thank you very much. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.